things that has some impact on what we will get to, hopefully before the sermon is over. Uh, we came down to James 4 yesterday, and I said we might or might not go there, and uh, I hadn't planned to go there at all, but with some of the things that I think I have come to see, I think we should go there briefly. We won't stay here long uh, because I, I have many other things to discuss. But what he has here is very, very important to us for us to consider right now. James wrote to the scattered brethren, and the church certainly today is scattered all over the world. He wrote to people who were having problems getting along with one another, and God decided to preserve this for those upon whom the end of the age will come. So this is written and particularly preserved for the end-time church. So let's consider very briefly without too much comment what James has to say about people who are having difficulties. He says, James 4 verse 1, From where come wars and fightings among you? But we, we have here to discuss why war and fighting is in the church. Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members. So uh, we know right off the bat that if we're having troubles and fighting and, and difficulties and animosity and so on, they come from human nature that is warring in our members. He says, you lust and have not, you kill and desire to have. Now, we're not doing those things physically right now. Uh, lust is, has many different forms, uh, whether it be for, for house, land, property, cars, uh, business, wealth, you name it, uh, things that different people desire. <clears throat> uh, and we assassinate each other verbally instead of with physical knives, and desire to have, people want things, and can't obtain. It's difficult and frustrating when you want something and can't get it. You fight and war, and yet you have not because you ask not. And people say, well, we are asking. We're asking God. Well, okay, read verse 3 then. You ask and receive not. So, he says, even if you do ask and you don't receive, there's a reason for that. Because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your own lust. So, when we pray to God and ask Him uh, to give us certain things, and we have a selfish motive, He doesn't answer. And we don't get what we want. So, He says, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. If we're acting like the world, being like the world, grasping and greedy and trying to jump over one another and take from one another, uh, that's, that's enmity against God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Not just having friends in the world, but having attitudes like the world is being friendly with the world. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain... The spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. That is the human spirit, the spirit in man, uh, deceitful, desperately wicked, envious, lustful, greedy, vain, jealous, and so on. But he, God, gives more grace, wherefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So do we think we deserve? Do we have a sense of entitlement? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. But what if we're more like the world and like Satan in our attitudes of animosity, anger, uh, accusation, self-justification? On and on it goes, the works of the flesh. Uh, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Trying Double-minded means having a form of godliness, seeking God with our lips, but having attitudes that are not godly. He says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. 
Humble yourselves in the sight of the Eternal, and He will lift you up. Don't try to lift yourself up. Now he gets right down to the church and the way we treat one another. Verse 11, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges or condemns his brother speaks evil of the law. The law of whom? The law of God. So there, if you speak evil against your brother, you're speaking evil against God who made your brother. So he speaks evil of the law and condemns the law. But if you condemn the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a condemner. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you that condemns or judges another? Okay, with that preface, let's go back to uh, Exodus 19. I want to get into Pentecost and some of the meanings of Pentecost and then come back to things that we just read about in James 4, because there are some specifics in Scripture that seem very much to relate to what James 4 is saying. Now, here in Exodus 19, we have the prelude leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And Moses told them here in verse 11 uh, that they were to, well, verse 10, He said, Go to the people, sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day, for the third day the Eternal will come down in the sight of all the people to Mount Sinai. So, specifically here, three days are mentioned. Now, notice verse 1 of chapter 19. This is in the third month. Pentecost falls in the third month. Well, now, normally, if the Sabbath's coming up, you would do your Sabbath preparation for what? The second day. The first day would be preparation. Second day would be the weekly Sabbath. But here in the third month with Pentecost coming, he said, sanctify, set yourselves apart, cleanse yourselves, wash your clothes on the first day. That would be the preparation day or Friday. Then you'd have the weekly Sabbath, the second day. The third day would be Pentecost. And then he gives the Ten Commandments on the third day. So it does appear, and there's other uh, information to back that up, that the law of God was given on Pentecost. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 5, where Moses reiterates the, or repeats, the giving of the law. And in chapter 5, he tells them to hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears, that you may learn them and keep them. The Eternal our God made a covenant with us in Horeb or Sinai. So he's saying that there was a covenant made when the commandments were given. The Eternal made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. And God talked to you face to face in the mount, and you lived, and so on. So he made a covenant there with them. Well, that was a marriage covenant that Christ made with Israel, and it was a covenant with physical promises, not spiritual, eternal life, but but uh, blessing and joy and uh, profitableness and a good life on a physical level if they would keep the Ten Commandments on a physical level. So that was the covenant that was laid out on that Pentecost in uh, the year that they came out of uh, the land of Mitzrayim. And apparently on Pentecost, because it is a day that he made a covenant, and we'll see in just a little bit that he made another covenant, uh, again on Pentecost in the New Testament. But before we go there, let's go to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. And see a little bit of the background of Pentecost here where he gave the order to to keep it and the seven Sabbaths you count and the 50th day is Pentecost. Verse 17, you shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths deals. Well, first of all, they did a wave sheaf, uh, a small sheaf back in uh, verse 12 that they were to wave, and here they bring out two wave loaves of flour to wave before God. 
and he says that they are to be baked with leaven, they are the first fruits to the eternal. So the meaning here of Pentecost has to do with God's first fruits. We'll see first fruits mentioned in the New Testament as well. And they were to have offer these with other offerings. Uh, verse 20, and the priest shall wave them, verse 20, with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the eternal with the two lambs, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And it's a holy convocation and so on. So you have here, and that's all I want to cover on it rather than getting into more, you have here the first fruits mentioned, the wave sheaf, and then the two loaves of, uh, of, of bread that represent the first fruits. So that'll become important here in a little bit. Now, uh, let's go to Acts 2. Acts 2. Is it a true statement? Well, let me get there and read the first verse or two. And ask you if something is true. Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. They were filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 4. Now, is this the first coming of the Holy Spirit of God? I think it's been referred to over and over over the years as this is when God sent his Holy Spirit. Is that true? What about Psalm 51:11, where David prayed, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. <clears throat> and we do indeed find that in the Old Testament there were a few people to whom God gave his Holy Spirit. Now you might say, well, they weren't completely begotten and so on. But let's go to the book of John, uh, verse chapter 21, John 21. Verse 19, John 21, 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Emmanuel and stood in the midst. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Eternal. Then said Emmanuel to them, Peace be to you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive you the Holy Spirit. Well, this was before Acts 2. Now, he also laid a very, very heavy responsibility there, same as he said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. Whosoever sins you remit or forgive, they are forgiven to them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. So God put within the apostles there a very important responsibility that the people that they would work with in the future, uh, they would have to determine attitudes and approaches and so on, and they would have to decide whether to allow a sin to be forgiven or to retain it. Now, an example of that would be where Paul told them in 1 Corinthians 5, he made the decision, not, uh, not a vote of the people. He told them to get that man out who was committing incest within the church, and it was common knowledge. Uh, so he made that decision, and he said that man's sin is retained, essentially is what he was saying. Uh, he hasn't repented. His sin is still there. Uh, we're not going to forgive it. Put him out. Get rid of it. Don't have anything to do with it. Then later on, when the man had repented, Paul said the man's changed his attitude. He's quit sinning. Now I'm going to remit his sin. It, it is now removed, and you are to allow him back in. You are to receive him as a brother again. So uh, Paul used that apostolic authority there that Christ committed or, or gave right here. <clears throat> but I don't think it is uh, 
strange in that sense that he had called those twelve apostles. He had worked with them and trained them all that time. And then he gave them the Holy Spirit ahead of offering it in a general way to people just shortly thereafter. Now, I think it is true, certainly, that on Pentecost there in Acts 2, he gave the Holy Spirit in power and provided it for new converts. Because through the teaching and preaching of Peter and the others, along with the tremendous miracles God did on that day, uh, 3,000 were baptized, were converted, and shortly thereafter another 5,000. So the church grew very, very rapidly when God gave His Spirit with power. So I think it's a misnomer to say that's when He first gave the Spirit. He gave it to the disciples ahead of time. And then He made it available on a general uh, basis for any who came to understand and believe the truth. So when he breathed it on them, he also gave them power to go with it, to forgive or not to forgive. Now let's notice back in Acts 2 again, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now that included at that time, not only the twelve disciples to be apostles, but it also included those who were left, who had not gone backward from Christ, of the 120 uh, who had gathered before. So all were within one accord and one place. Now, if we look at the church today, there are many people who are keeping Pentecost this very day in many different groups, and the whole church is certainly not in accord. And it is certainly not all in one place. So we have a different circumstance today than they had there in Acts 2. And we need to grasp that and come to grips with it, because I think you'll see in a little bit it's a very, very important thing to understand. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. So God acted and reacted in part because they were in one accord and one place. They were unified. Now, in this day and age, we are already aware from the minor prophets, the major prophets, and from places in the New Testament, that the church will never again be in one accord in this age. It will not happen again. Ten percent will come will meet together, and they will be in one accord, in one place, because Christ said, I will bring peace in this place. Haggai 2.9, I think it is. It's in Haggai anyway. So the 10% remnant that come together will all be gathered together, and they will be of one accord. 90% of the church will go into the tribulation, as the minor prophets in Isaiah make very, very clear. So, when we talk about the scattered brethren, as James did, we'll never again be like Acts 2, except God will make a separation, and He will cause peace and accord and people being together of those whom He selects and stirs to come. All will not repent and be like it was in Acts 2. The 10% will. And they, then, will become like Acts 2. Understand the difference. It's not yet happened, but it is in the offing. It's not far off. There appeared to them cloven tongues like fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, they were filled in a way there that when Christ breathed on the disciples, it was a gentle thing, a breath. Here, it came as tongues of fire and a mighty wind and noise. And filled with is different from breathing on and having them receive in a smaller way. So they spoke in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And it goes on down and talks about how people heard in their own language and they were amazed and marveled 
And then some began to say, oh, that's crazy. These people are drunk with new wine. And then they were told, no, it's only the third hour by Peter. And uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, they aren't all full of wine yet. So if they're not drunk, this is something that God is doing. And then he equated it, verse 16, to what the prophet Joel had said about the last days. Now, he was wrong in that he thought it was the last days, and Christ allowed all the apostles until they died to believe Christ was returning in their lifetime. He, he just didn't tell them differently. So Peter automatically thought that this thing was happening immediately, and these must be the last days. Now, God did pour out his Spirit, no doubt about it. And, it, and, and Joel, too, talks about how your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and old men dream dreams, and so on. And on his servants and on his handmaids, he will pour out in those days of his spirit, and they shall prophesy. Then he talks about wonders in the heaven, blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun darkened, and so on. That didn't happen in Acts 2. Uh, so Acts 2 was a partial fulfillment. Peter was right. But it wasn't the final fulfillment. Now, was Peter correct, not in the timing but was he correct in speaking of some things that would happen on Pentecost? Was Joel referring to Pentecost? I guess that remains to be seen, does it not? It does talk in Joel, too, about the first month. Uh, it says in the first. It doesn't say month there. I, I think we take it to mean month. Uh, but he also talks about blessings coming on the 9th and 24th there in Haggai. So there are different times that God does different things. And it might very well be that God pours out his Spirit again on a Pentecost. This one, next one, that one after that, who knows? We'll wait and see. But in Zechariah 3, it says that when God begins to turn things around, there will be signs and wonders and all seven churches will look at a stone, and Christ is the stone, obviously, that they look to because he's the one that does signs and wonders. And that the two witnesses will see eye to eye when God turns it around there in Isaiah 52, verse 8 and 9, I believe it is. So uh, it's very possible that Pentecost will again be a dramatic day. I don't think we can discount that. Peter may have been very correct here on this. God does do things in patterns, after all. Now, it is interesting uh, that all these people were being converted, and there was a drought, and I'll mention it here, and maybe come back to it, but keep it in mind, that the apostles were giving instruction, they were teaching these people, they were baptizing them, they were teaching them of Christ, and then because of the circumstances, and it says they had all things in common, clear back here in, what was it, chapter 2 or 3? Yeah, the end of, uh, end of 2, uh, where this was going on. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, 42, and fear came upon them, and signs and wonders were done by the apostles. And they believed together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. So uh, that selling of property and so on began almost immediately after this Pentecost, okay? It's brought up again in chapter 5 where some rebelled against what the apostles were saying needed to be done. They said, you need to sell it all, turn it in, we'll divide equally where it needs to be divided. But Ananias and Sapphira, uh, according to James 4, got greedy and lustful, and they wanted to keep their land, but they decided, well, we'll go ahead and sell it, but we'll keep part of the money. Now, that's not what the apostles had instructed. So they rebelled against the apostles, right? And God struck them both dead. Now, I think this can become significant in a little bit when we get down to the Scripture to, to, to analyze. Uh, in Luke 22:32, I meant to say this when I talked about uh, Christ whispering 
and the Holy Spirit coming to them. In Luke 22, verse 32, uh, God told Peter, or Christ told Peter, that when you were converted, strengthen your brethren. Now, Peter had, did, had done nothing to actually strengthen the brethren that's mentioned in the Bible at all until this day of Pentecost, had he? So, when he was converted, maybe when Christ breathed the Holy Spirit on him, but the, the day of Pentecost came immediately thereafter, what did he start doing? He started preaching very powerfully and very strongly, uh, and his sermons did some good. So, he was strengthening the brethren there in Acts 2, and God certainly helped it along by showing some very dramatic signs and wonders and miracles. But that's when Peter really began to do what Christ had told him there in Luke 22 just before he died. But just before he died. Now, James 1, verse 18, which we read just recently, says that we are a kind of first fruits to God. And he, Paul refers to the church as, uh, in one place, uh, the church at Achaia is the first fruits of Achaia. And several times in Scripture, I'm not going to go there for sake of time, he talks about how we are the first fruits. And of course, in, in uh, Revelation 14, verse 7, when he's speaking of the 144,000, he says, These are the first fruits. No more, no less. The first fruits include 144,000 people. Now, we need to understand that in the plan of God, Christ is his first goal and purpose in his plan of salvation for all mankind is to prepare first a bride for his wife. Uh, he starts that in the Holy Day uh, sequence, Passover. He gives his life for mankind, for all the world, really, ultimately. But... Uh, for spiritual Israel first and foremost, because they're the first ones he deals with in the first resurrection. So he gives himself for his bride. He tells her to put sin out for seven days, the Passover plus six more, the days of man to put sin out, Christ doing the primary work on the first day, and us the next six continuing to put sin out once he begins the process of forgiveness of sin through his sacrifice. So, what does he tell us in Revelation? That the bride prepares herself. How does she prepare herself? By taking on white garments, the garments of righteousness. So, preparing herself is getting rid of sin and becoming unspotted from the world and the sin that is in it. So, the bride begins to prepare herself. Then we count 50, uh, 50 days to Pentecost. Now, interestingly, the year of Jubilee is 50 years, every 50 years, in which liberty is proclaimed throughout the land. Now, we just read in <coughs> James, I think yesterday, <coughs> that the royal law is the Ten Commandments, and it is the perfect law of liberty. So, keeping the law of God will give true liberty from pain, from sickness, from death, from tears, which he says will happen to his bride. She will have none of those things because she keeps the law, and at that point, once she has been changed from mortal to immortal, she will be perfect, will never break the law again, and will never have anything else to cry about or fear or worry about. So, liberty is tied up in keeping the law. Now, the Feast of Pentecost comes along 50 days after Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And it is a day that God gave great liberation. He gave His Holy Spirit to us as a church, as a people, that we might begin to keep the New Covenant. Now, Christ, in His first sermon to His disciples there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, laid down the terms of the new covenant. We read in Deuteronomy 5 where he says, I made a covenant with you at Horeb or Sinai to keep the Ten Commandments. 
physically, basically. Uh, then he told the disciples, no, we're going beyond that. Now you've got to keep it mentally, spiritually speaking. You can't even think sin, much less do it. So he raised the stakes to controlling every thought. He also raised the reward from physical blessing as a nation to spiritual blessing and eternal life. So the new covenant was offered on Pentecost. That is the day Christ became engaged to his bride. He said, I'll give you my spirit so that you can keep the law. That's a covenant, isn't it? I'll give you my spirit so you can fulfill Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In the Old Testament, he gave them the law and says, I'll make a covenant with you. If you keep this law, I'll bless you. Now he's saying, if you'll keep this law in the spirit and in the flesh, I will bless you and give you even greater promises. And he gave them the Holy Spirit to help them grow and overcome to keep that law in the spirit. So he gave them the law physically back then, and they had trouble keeping it. Now on Pentecost, he gives his Holy Spirit as a comforter and a help so that they might keep this new covenant. And it wasn't really a covenant that was made <laughs> until the helper came. For without that helper, you had no chance. So that's the day Christ said, all right, I'm going to give you my spirit. Now will you marry me? So that was the day of engagement. Now the Feast of Trumpets will come along. And that's the time when she is changed from physical to spirit so that she can no longer sin. We go through a long, hot summer from Pentecost with our bridegroom gone back to heaven. And he's not with us. And we lament and we mourn and we fast because the bridegroom is not with us, as he said. Well, he comes back for us, Feast of Trumpets, and we're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and made perfectly righteous. Uh, then, he takes us to, we meet him in the air, he takes us to his Father's throne, and there, pictured by the Day of Atonement, we become at one with him. Atonement is to humble us, to make us meek, to make us ready to listen, to hear, and it is a time when Satan is bound so that he can no longer bother us, and it is a time of becoming at one with Christ, and at one means married. So, this day pictures Christ saying, will you marry me, and presenting us a covenant of engagement for marriage, is what this day pictures. And it was a blessed, joyous day there in Acts 2, and <clears throat> should be every day that it comes ever since. But now we do have a problem within the church today, as I said. Now let's go back to Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14. I know I covered a lot of ground there, but it's going to make some sense to us here in a little bit, I think. Deuteronomy 14. Uh, here a general uh, instruction is given. Um... He talks about clean and unclean early in this chapter, and then not eating anything that dies of itself in 21. Uh, give to the stranger that is in your gates if it dies of itself, or sell, sell it to an alien. For you are a holy people to the eternal your God. And then he makes a statement, you shall not see the kid in his mother's milk. Now that's a, one of the general instructions here. Now, we're going to find in a moment that he also uses that same phrase in a very specific context. Now, it's, it's been bandied about a lot by scholars and by the church, really, over the years, of what this means. And two possible explanations, I think, uh, either of which could fit, are given. Uh, not seething a kid in his mother's milk could mean either don't sacrifice it, don't kill it, while before it's weaned. In other words, it's a, a thing of mercy. Here's a poor little baby just been born, uh, still 
suckling its mother for its sustenance, and you jerk it off the mother and kill it to eat, is kind of an unmerciful thing. Uh, it could also mean, it's been imagined or thought, <coughs> that if you did kill it, you shouldn't cook it or boil it in its mother's milk, which is tantamount to the same thing, both while it's young, whether you actually cook it in the mother's milk or you kill it while it's still on its mother's milk. I think either case there you could talk about uh, merciful behavior. So here it's a general instruction, but I have wondered over the years at what it meant when it was used suddenly sort of seemingly out of the blue uh, in a couple of other places. Let's go back first of all to uh, Exodus 34. And we'll see it used in terms of Pentecost, which I find very, very interesting. Exodus 34. And here we want uh, verse 23 says, Three times in the year shall all your men appear before the eternal. And then he talks about the holy days as the times when we are to appear. Passover season, Pentecost, and then the fall festivals. Uh, he's talking about Passover here in verse 25. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, neither shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left unto the morning. <coughs> so he's talking about Passover up to there. Then he says in verse 26, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Eternal your God. So that echoes of Leviticus 23, does it not? Which we've already read where it talked about Christ being waved as the wave sheaf. He was the first fruit, first of the first fruits. Then it talks of the two wave loaves, which are which represent the first fruits. Whether that means Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament is bandied about. <coughs> but nevertheless, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it represents uh, the first fruits. So he introduces Pentecost here. The first of the first fruits you shall bring into the house of the eternal your God. You shall not see the kid in his mother's milk. Now, what does that have to do with Pentecost? It was a general clean and unclean rule of instruction back in uh, uh, Deuteronomy 14. But here, it's mentioned specifically with Pentecost, kind of out of the blue, seemingly out of context. What, what does that have to do with Pentecost? I've often wondered that, and I've heard it uh, speculated about, and nobody had an answer over the years. Let's go back to Exodus 23. Here we find more context. Again, he's speaking of the holy days in verse, 20, or verse 17 of chapter 23. Uh, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the eternal. He's Well, he mentions it back in 14. Let's pick that up first. Three times you shall keep a feast. Speaks of unleavened bread. And then he goes on down, not coming empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you've sown in the field. That would be Pentecost. And the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year. So that's the fall festival. He mentions all three. And then, he again says, three times in the year, they shall appear. And you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, neither shall the fat of my sacrifice remain till the morning. So he mentions again Passover. Then he goes to Pentecost again. <clears throat> Verse 19. The first of the first fruits of your land shall you bring into the house of the Eternal your God, you shall not see the kid in his mother's milk. Again, that strange connection between Pentecost and seeing a kid in his mother's milk. There again, it was just a general, one of the instructions uh, having to do with mercy, I guess. But here he mentions it in particular with Pentecost. Now, what does this mean? A kid in his mother's milk is very young, hasn't been born long, hasn't been weaned yet. 
you can wean a goat or a sheep at about six to eight weeks. Uh, mothers will start kicking them off anyway by about eight weeks. So, still very young. <clears throat> so, what he has reference to here is youth. Uh, we know that Jerusalem, the church, is the mother of us all from the book of Galatians. So, let's look at this in an end-time context, because all these scriptures were written for those of us upon whom the ends of the world shall come. Don't see the kid in his mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel. You can look that word up in the uh, Hebrew here, and it doesn't necessarily mean something from God's throne with wings. Uh, the word simply means uh, a messenger or a prophet, priest, or teacher is what the Greek defines, or the Hebrew, I mean, defines this word that is used here as. So, angel may not, an angel from heaven may not be uh, what it's speaking of, but this is a prophet, priest, teacher, a deputy, it says as well in the definition, someone that God sends for a particular purpose. Now, it says, I'll send a messenger, or, or a prophet, or a priest, before you, to keep you in the way, to keep you going the right direction, and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Now, he prepared Jerusalem and Israel for those who would be going into the promised land. Uh, Moses didn't take them, but he prepared Joshua to take them in, and indeed Joshua did take them in. Now, we find in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets that he also wants a place prepared in the end time. So then it is no longer ancient history of Joshua in the physical promised land. Then it becomes a place prepared, um, as Revelation 12 says, that God will prepare a place in the wilderness, and when Satan is cast down, he will chase them, and she will flee to her place. So it is very much an end time prophecy as well. So he says... Uh, to bring you to a place which I prepared. You might keep a marker there. Now, let's go to Hebrews. Well, let me read, let me read just a little more here before we go there. Maybe it'll make more sense. It says, He'll keep you in the way. He'll bring you into the place which I've prepared. Beware of Him and obey His voice. Provoke Him not. For he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Okay? Now let's go back to Hebrews 5. Now, here he's speaking of Christ as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in verse 6. Uh, And it speaks of him in verse 7, saying, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So Christ suffered many things on this earth. It says that he was a man of sorrows. And being made mature, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. So he's saying that Christ is the door, as even Christ himself says, the only path to salvation called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. Now he's telling these Jewish converts that they are dull of hearing, and it's hard to get across to them what needs to be said. That tends to be the way people are. There are many prophecies in the Old Testament about people being dull of hearing, hard of hearing, uh, shrugging the shoulder, planting all four feet and, and uh, holding back, and not being willing to hear, and so on. So when Paul addresses these Jewish converts, he says, you may be converted, you may be in the church, but uh, you're dull of hearing, and it's hard to get across to you what you need to hear and understand. Okay? Is that true today? where we have a church riven into hundreds of pieces and people are having trouble understanding what God is thinking, doing, and telling us to do. Though so nothing has changed along those lines. Now notice verse 12. 
For when, for the time, you ought to be teachers. He said, you're converted enough. You've, you've been uh, Jews. You weren't Gentiles. So you knew about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and, and Moses. And you knew about the Old Testament. You attended temple all your lives. You were taught there. Now you've seen Christ. You've become converted. You've accepted Him. You've learned the doctrines of God as taught by the apostles. It says there in Acts uh, 2, end of the, toward the end of the chapter, we started just below it, that they continued in the apostles' doctrine, the things that the apostles were teaching them that Christ had taught them, okay? So here's Paul saying the same thing to these people. We've taught you. And by now, you ought to have learned enough you could be a teacher. But there's a problem. You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles or the sayings of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, here's a people who started out on milk, Okay? Now, you're not as hard on them. You don't sacrifice them. You don't kick them out when they're new, when they're just begotten on their way to be born. You are gentle with them. You take time with them. You teach them. And they should grow until they can be weaned off milk and accept strong doctrine and teaching, or meat, as he says here, in this particular context. Now, a lamb or a, a kid doesn't leave mother's milk and, and turn to meat. They turn to grass. So it's a, it's a little bit different analogy, but it has the same principle and meaning to it. So here we have people who have been taught, and then they begin to abandon that. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, he says, you should, you've been taught, you should have learned, but you didn't, and now you're, you're going back to milk instead of to meat. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age or maturity, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he says, when you're babes, you don't know all that's evil and you don't know all that's good. And you have to be fed milk. Does that remind you of that expression? Seize not a kid in his mother's milk? You don't sacrifice them. You take it easy with them. You're patient. You're merciful. Till they get past milk and get the strong drink. And then you can be stronger with them. But what if they revert? What if they go back to milk? And their senses are not exercised to discern good and evil. Now, is that like James 4? Here you are. You're in the church. And now you've been scattered. And now you're going back and letting your carnal human nature take over because of your lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy. Because of wanting things that you should not have. And you fight and war among yourselves over the things that you wish you had. Does that sound like the church today? So James was saying what Paul is talking about here. You're going back to stuff you should understand better, but you're losing it. You're losing it. The things that you learned, you're losing. You're going back to bitterness and anger and lust and vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, accusation, judging your brother. Isn't that what James said down the end of what I started reading, don't judge and condemn your brother because they're judging and condemning the law and he who made the law. Can't do that. Is that being done anywhere in the church today? Is that going back to the milk and forgetting the things that you've learned? <coughs> Let's go to chapter 6. Therefore, not forgetting the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to maturity, 
not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, people are reacting without faith now. <coughs> They're saying, God isn't in charge. We need to be in charge. Like Ananias, Sapphira, like Korah, like Nathan, Abiram, like uh, Miriam and Aaron. We don't have faith in God. He says, you shouldn't be having to lay that again. You should have faith by now. But when people lose faith in God doing what God said He is going to do, then they are forgetting maturity. They are forgetting spiritual understanding. <laughs> the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Why do you have to go back to the very, very basic things? Why didn't you grow beyond that? Those are milk. You're supposed to have gotten where you can handle meat. And now you're going back to lack of faith. Uh, verse 3, And this will we do, if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, that is, went through the rudimentary things, the milk, <laughs> repented, were baptized, received the Holy Spirit. So they tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, of what is ahead of us. So these are people who were converted, they understood, they knew. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Now, when we are taught the truth and become converted and then we're taught more and taught more and taught more and the deeper things and better understanding, and then we go back and allow human nature to take over instead of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, happiness, and so on, and we go back to anger, bitterness, accusation, hate, murder, lying, adultery, and so on, spiritual adultery, and spiritual murder, assassination of character. We are forgetting those things that we learned that are deeper, that are more of what a mature Christian ought to be doing. A mature Christian ought to be learning love and joy and peace and patience and mercy and, and those things. But when you revert to what you were when you were first converted, you're denying what God has given you. You're going back to the rudiments of the world with those attitudes. And if you let it go that way, you can't gain it back. Once you lose it, it's, it's too late. It's, it's a dangerous thing to revert to milk and forgetting the meat. But that's what he says people were doing then, and that's what people are doing today. He goes on in chapter 12, I won't go there, to talk about Esau who let his attitude get away from him, and he began to hate his brother and to accuse his brother and even threaten to kill his brother. And he, had, he never got over it, even though he sought it carefully with tears. And his progeny have not gotten over it either. He says right here in the end time, Esau or Edom would come against Jacob and help in the destruction of Jacob, and they would crow about it, and then God would deal with them. So when, the, when those deep-seated attitudes get there, they're almost impossible to overcome. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to Exodus 23 again. Verse 19. Let's look at it again. The first of the firstfruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Eternal your God. So, the firstfruits are converted members of God's church today. And we keep Pentecost as a day of the first fruits of the bride of Christ when he begins assembling his bride, gives her his spirit, and makes this engagement that he has made. So today, pictures, or is the day of the first fruits. Okay? So here we are gathered on Pentecost. And you shall bring into the house of the eternal, your God. So the first fruits are to be brought in 
tithes, offerings, the offerings and sacrifices they made in Leviticus 23 on Pentecost. And then that enigmatic little phrase again, you shall not see the kid in his mother's milk. I think that ties in perfectly with Hebrews 5 and 6, where people are new, and they're not weaned, they're on mother's milk, we teach them the very basic doctrines, they have the little booklets that were sent out in Worldwide and so on, and most of us were brought into the church at that time when those booklets were there, and he hasn't called in but precious few since. <laughs> so that's when we were on mother's milk. Then we began to learn more. Herbert Armstrong himself began to understand the mystery of God better, and the purpose of man, he began to understand the spirit in man, the mystery of the ages, and some of those things that he learned later in his life, uh, we began to understand, and those became more meek. Since he died, there are many scriptures that have become apparent that we couldn't have understood at that time that we understand now about the future, about how the church would come apart and why and how he'll have 10% gathered, and how he will put them in one place in one accord in the place that he has prepared, okay? So now we understand things we didn't then. We understand Passover better. We understand counting Pentecost better. We understand the calendar now, and we didn't then. And I could go on and on. We understand Emmanuel. We understand uh, who Assyria is that we didn't then. There's so many, many things we've learned that should be leading us toward righteousness and holiness and thankfulness that we have learned what we have learned. But some of those things people are beginning to turn their back on. Uh, the government of God that we learned under Herbert Armstrong and learned better. Now they're saying, we the people rule. Baloney. That's not in the Bible at all. It's leaving the deeper things and going back to milk is what it is. <clears throat> so... I think that this ties in with Pentecost very, very closely. We come into the church, we're converted, represented by Pentecost. Acts 2 was the first, uh, first time that God's Spirit was given in power to a lot of people. And that is the beginning of conversion, of begettle of the Spirit of God. So that ties in with seizing a kid in his mother's milk because it's the newborn infant that is still on mother's milk, just like Acts 2 was the very beginning of the New Testament church. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, <coughs> the apostles did not kick out, did they? They were new. Ananias and Sapphira were new. I don't know how long they had been going to temple and keeping the Old Testament laws, maybe all their lives, maybe not. But they were certainly new right after the day of Pentecost, and they were just learning all these new spiritual principles, the milk of the Word, who Christ is and what He expects us to do and to repent and be baptized, as Peter said in Acts 2.38. <clears throat> they were just learning those things. <clears throat> now, the apostles did not cut them off in the mother's milk, did they? No, God did. He said, this is a spirit of rebellion that I don't want to get going in my early New Testament church. These are all newborn lambs and kids, and they all need to have an opportunity to grow in peace and learn to be true Christians and become mature Christians. So when that rebellion happened very, very early in the New Testament church, God himself did it. He cut off those two lambs who had become rebellious lambs uh, right after the day of Pentecost. The apostles didn't. <clears throat> now, we are not to do that with newborns. Now, and then he says, right in the same context, now, you won't read this anywhere else when it talks about Pentecost. Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy, any place it talks about how you keep Pentecost, it doesn't give a prophecy like it does right here. Exact same context. Behold, I send a prophet or a priest, a messenger, ahead of you, someone that he instructs ahead of time on what needs to be done, to keep you in the way, to not let them stray away from God, to stray away from his teachings, but to keep them on it, and to keep them on a way that is 
continuing to learn. We're told that all things have to be restored in the end. And Herbert Armstrong did not finish that. So more has to be done to keep us in the way and that we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Not just sit still, but go forward and learn more. So he says, I'll send someone <clears throat> to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So whoever this is, whether it was Joshua in the Old Testament or whether it's someone in the New Testament that is sent to prepare a place ahead of time for people to flee to uh, in Revelation 12 and to go to, which is Zion and all the prophecies of the Old Testament, that they, we are to flee to Zion. We've seen those over and over and over, dozens and dozens of them. So the place which he has prepared is Zion and Jerusalem. And Zion will be the ultimate place of safety prepared for those in Revelation 12. So this is all to be done at the end time as well. Beware of him. Pay attention. I, I could read, what time is it? Uh, I could read, I think I will, here in uh, 26 Translations book. Uh, let's see, I want uh, verse 21. says, beware of him, and it's, it's alternatively translated. Well, let's see. Let's go on back. I've sent a messenger, it says. Uh, one translation uses the word messenger. To keep you in the way, King James says. Uh, to preserve you in the journey, another one says. To, to keep you in the way or preserve you and keep you in the journey that you have to take to get there. And to bring you into the place which I have prepared, is what the King James says. Uh, another translation says, and bring you to the land which I have prepared for you. Then it says, beware of him. Uh, other translations, and there are several, say, be watchful because of his presence. Pay attention, be aware. Uh, mind his presence. Take you heed before him. Moffat says, attend to him. Jerusalem Bible says, give him reverence or respect. And obey his voice, says in the King James. You're reading along there. Uh, other translations say, hearken to his voice, listen to his bidding, heed his injunctions. Uh, then your King James says, provoke him not. Other translations say, do not vex him. Do not offend him. Do not strive against him. Be not rebellious against him. Disobey him not. Never defy him. Think not to treat him with neglect. Then your Bible, King James says, for he will not pardon your transgressions. Other translations put it, he will not pardon your rebelliousness. He will not overlook your faults. He will not forgive your sin. <clears throat> the ministry was given that power, remember? We read that earlier. For he should not, uh, for he should not withdraw from you. For my name is in him, King James says. Another translation says, my name is in his heart. He is my representative. He hears my name. My authority resides in him or I will manifest myself in him. <clears throat> then yours says, but if you shall indeed obey his voice, other translations say, if you will hearken diligently to this voice of mine, if you will listen to his warnings, but if you do heed his injunctions, or if you will heartily obey his word, then yours says, and do all that I speak, and here, in other translations, say, and perform all that I command, and do all that he says to you. Then he will be an enemy to your enemies. And he will protect you from the Hittite, the Hivite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite, and so on. If you read on and down in verse 23. So he's speaking of a time that has to do with Pentecost, uh, and being careful with the young, 
But there will come a time when things get rough and a place will have to be prepared and we better pay attention and listen and not provoke because if we rebel, we will not be forgiven. And God will deal with that. He says, if you will pay attention, uh, I'll take care of you. Implying, if you don't, I will not take care of you. And in Jeremiah 11, it says, if you rebel, he'll put you to the sword and to famine, or the tribulation, of course. So, this is, I think, indelibly tied together with Pentecost. Uh, strange, I never, I never saw that before. But that expression, not see the kid in his mother's milk, never made any sense except as a general instruction of mercy there in, in Deuteronomy. But here it, tie, it is tied directly to Pentecost. And Pentecost was the beginning of the conversion of the New Testament church. So he's talking about the end-time church, and then Paul explains it in Hebrews 5 and 6, that you learn on milk, and then you graduate to meat, and then when you go back to milk and you begin to forget the things you've learned and begin to have carnal uh, worldly reactions instead of godly reactions, and you lose that spiritual understanding and attitude that you had of God's Spirit and go back to the rudiments of carnality in the world, then you can't be retrieved. And if people start rebelling at this time, in this age... They're going to be part of that 90% that are left behind and will not be brought back. So, I think that has to do with Pentecost from that standpoint. That it is dealing with new ones who then grow up. And then, <clears throat> once they grow up and they begin to revert, they are dealt with harshly. And are not forgiven going back to the rudiments of the world and satanic attitudes. So, this is our day, Pentecost, for the first fruits. And we need to have the attitude of first fruits, to have the attitude of the mind of Christ and the bride of Christ, to be getting rid of our sins, to have the white garments of righteousness, so that we can be presented to Christ and Him say, Will you marry me in type on this day? And then we go through this long, hot summer, which is just ahead of us, to see if we will remain faithful and we can be changed in a moment in the twinkling of eye, an eye at the last trump.